Friends, because that song is true, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask Him for His help because we need Him. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, we come to You as sinners who have been made Your children through our Lord Jesus. We come to You as sinners who have been made Your people by Your grace and were now called by Your name. And so we, we come to you in, in prayer now, hopeful, trusting you, knowing that you're good and merciful and gracious. And so we pray that you would be good to us this morning as we now look to your word. We pray your spirit would come and minister amongst us. Fill me with your Holy Spirit as I aim to preach the Bible. And we pray for your spirit to work and fill all of these dear people who will hear your word preached. We pray that you would give us hearts that are receptive to your truth. Give us minds that can track with your word. We pray that we would be affected and stirred and changed today. We ask that genuinely, if even imperfectly, and we trust that you will answer. And we pray for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, it is Father's Day, and the title of the sermon this morning is You Are All Sons of God, which is not an original title from me at all. It's taken straight from our text in verse 26. You are all sons of God. And so as we think today in good ways, maybe honest and and hard ways about our earthly fathers or the fact that we are fathers, some of us in this room today, of course we are driven even as Ron mentioned earlier, to think about our Heavenly Father, to thank Him and praise Him for His utter and unshakable faithfulness to us, His goodness to us, the fact that He never fails us. But the question has to be asked, how is it that sinful people become sons and daughters of the Holy God? How is it that sinners like you and me become the children of God. I mean, that kind of language is used a lot in the church. It can become such a normal part of our vocabulary that I think sometimes we're sort of inoculated to how scandalous that is to say that we are children of God, that we can now call Him not just God, not just judge, but the word that we confessed earlier that we read from Romans 8 is an intimate term. Daddy, Father. How is it that that relationship comes to be? We talk about things here at CBC. We'll use language about how that happens. We'll say that we're imperfect people. We have a perfect Savior. The implication in that is that we are flawed. We can't do this adequately, but Jesus is perfect and Jesus has done it and that's how we are reconciled to the Father. Okay. We'll also talk about the fact that every one of us come as we are on Sunday mornings. You kind of bring your mess with you. You bring your sin. We'll talk about this sometimes when we welcome people to services. We want folks who are newer with us To know that we don't expect them to clean themselves up. Make themselves sort of spiritually presentable and acceptable in order to come here and worship God. We talk like that. So the implication is that we don't understand that you just do stuff. Do the right thing. Look the right way. Say the right thing in order to be reconciled to God. God is the one through His acting and His grace, simply through faith in Christ. That's how we understand that sinners are reconciled to Him. So come as you are. We talk like that. But I would never want anybody in this church to assume that just because something is printed on a letterhead or on a website or because we just talk like that on the regular, that those things are necessarily true. We ought to weigh them. And assess them. So is it legit to say imperfect people, perfect Savior? Is it legit to say come as you are? 
Where do we get that stuff is what I want to know. Is it just kind of clever? Did one of the pastors think it up? Hey, this will be a good hook line for our church for the next 30 years. Is that how that happened? Or do we get it from somewhere else? Do we get it from the Bible? And I hope to be able to consider the answer to those questions with you this morning as we look to the Word of God. If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, open them up to Galatians chapter 3. We've been making our way now through the letter of the Apostle Paul to the Galatian churches. We're going to be looking today primarily at verses 23 through 29 of chapter 3. Uh, I'm going to begin reading here just a moment from verse 19 just to give us a little bit of context. And it's okay if you have not been here for every one of these sermons. I trust that it will be made clear enough to you in terms of just an orientation in terms of where we are that you'll be able to track with the Apostle Paul and with me, I, I hope. So listen now as I read God's word, beginning in Galatians three nineteen through the end of chapter 3. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. I want to consider the text, verses 23 through 29, with you today in two points. And I'll go ahead and give you point number one. Uh, and I'm going to give us a little bit of context in the midst of point number one. Point number one is this. It's kind of a sentence. So it's a longer heading. A new era in redemptive history began with the coming of Jesus. A new era in redemptive history began with the coming of Jesus. So remember, big picture in terms of the letter to the Galatians, what's going on, what Paul is contending for. He is contending for the truth of the gospel, the truth of the good news of Jesus Christ. He's answering that most pivotal question, how is it that a sinner is declared righteous? How is it that a sinner is justified before God? Is it by faith in Jesus Christ plus keeping the law? Jesus Christ plus circumcision, traditions like that. Or is it by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone? Paul's answer has been very clear throughout the letter. That justification, being declared righteous before God, comes completely by faith. In the Lord Jesus Christ, in his life, his death, his resurrection, his fulfillment of the law in our place, and then his atoning death to pay for our sin, and his triumphant resurrection in which he has defeated sin and death and Satan. It is through faith in him, apart from works, that we are justified. That has been Paul's clear argument. He's been reasoning for that and contending for that. And in chapter 3, he begins an argument really grounded in redemptive history. He begins to talk to them about, did you receive the Holy Spirit by faith or by works? And the answer, of course, is, well, by faith. We didn't work in order to receive the Holy Spirit of God. He says, exactly. You received the Spirit by faith. And receiving the Holy Spirit in the new birth is how God is marking off His people now in the new covenant. It used to be circumcision. 
But now it's this thing called the new birth. And then he begins to consider Abraham as an example from redemptive history. Abraham is important because God made a promise to him. God chose Abram, as his name was originally, out of paganism, out of worshiping other gods along with his fathers. He chose him and made a promise to him. I'm going to make out of you a great nation. I'm going to make out of you a great people. I'm going to give you a land to have forever. And I'm going to bless you. And then Paul contends, he cites Genesis, the first book of the Bible, in which God made that promise to Abraham. And Abraham believed God and it was counted to him. It was credited to him as righteousness. And then he begins to demonstrate that how that promise that God made to Abraham to be received by faith is how all men are justified. Even Abraham, the man to whom circumcision was given, was justified by faith. And then Paul considers, well, all right, what about the law then? The law was given to Moses. The law was given to God's people through Moses, in particular 430 years after God made the promise to Abraham. And so... The law that came after the promise in no way nullifies the promise. That was Paul's argument that we considered a couple of weeks ago. And we considered again last week what the purposes of the law are. And we're going to touch on some of those again today because they're in our text. But Paul made it quite clear that the law is subordinate to the promise. That the law and the promise are not on the same plane. That the promise is prior and the promise in one sense is greater. And that it is through promise and not law that God's people are saved and that we become spiritual children of Abraham. So that's where we are. That's what we've been considering together over the recent weeks. And so now I want you to put your eyes on verse 23. We're going to consider how this new era in redemptive history began with the coming of Jesus. You can see this as clearly as I can. Verse 23 begins, Now before faith came, We were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. You see this language of before faith came. Okay, and then until the coming faith would be revealed. Well, what's Paul talking about? Paul's talking about the coming of the new covenant. He's talking about the coming of the new covenant era. Now, when he says before faith came or until the coming faith would be revealed, He does not mean that people prior to the new covenant did not live by faith. It's not what he's saying. The doctrine of faith is attested by Moses and all the prophets. Paul is not, again, to be crystal clear, saying that those who had lived under the law did not possess faith. That's not the point. He's making a comparative argument. He's making a comparison between that previous era and this new one. Faith is revealed much more clearly in the new covenant than it was prior. This is that progressive revelation stuff that we've been talking about for a couple of weeks. This is that unfolding of redemptive history, God's covenant of redemption stuff. How God, after the fall of man, after the sin that Adam and Eve committed in the garden in Genesis 3, in Genesis 3.15, God made a promise then. He said that He would send one who would come From the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. He was promising deliverance from Satan and the dominion of sin. And even from death. Even there in the beginning beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 3. And then we thought about how everything in scripture after Genesis 3.15 is God's covenant of redemption being unfolded. So we move out of the, the chapters there in the early Uh, Parts of the book of Genesis where men have fallen and plunged themselves and all of creation into sin. And then God destroys, in one sense, humanity with the exception of one family in the flood. He promises, Noah, I will never destroy the earth again with a flood. That was a covenant God made. But then moving beyond that, we know that God made a covenant with Moses in which he gave the law to his people. He made another covenant with David, King David. Many years later, he promised that there would be a son of David who would sit on the throne of David forever and that he would make for David's son that promised offspring an everlasting kingdom. And then we also know that God made new covenant promises. 
Jesus came to usher in that covenant. He makes that quite clear even when he instituted the Lord's Supper that we will talk about, or excuse me, that we will partake of later today when he says this is the new covenant in my blood, right? He came to secure it. And so as God reveals his plan of redemption progressively to us, we move from the Mosaic covenant into the Davidic covenant. And we understand, oh, there's going to be the son of David, this king who's going to reign forever. That's going to be a part of this plan of redemption. And then we get the new covenant promise of that promised savior and the fact that God's people are saved by looking to him and trusting in him as he is truly God and truly man, the one mediator between God and men. God's covenant of redemption is unfolding. Under the Mosaic covenant, and we could call that the law in Paul's language, the people of God had pointers to Jesus. The people of God had pointers, signposts, if you will, pointing to the reality of the Messiah, the Savior who would come. But then Jesus is very clearly, much more clearly revealed in the New Testament. It's been said, and I think this is accurate, in the Old Testament, Jesus Christ is concealed. He is pointed to, but He is concealed. In the New Covenant, in the New Testament, Jesus Christ is revealed. In the Old Covenant, excuse me, they had a mirror, but we see the man, Jesus. And they had the law, but we see its fulfillment in Christ. That language that you also see there in verse 23 that we were held captive under the law. We were anticipating faith. Faith was going to come. This new covenant era would come in which faith in the Messiah was clearly revealed as God's plan of salvation. But we were held captive under the law in prison. We considered this together last week about how the law, very much like Paul says in Romans 5.20, it came in to increase the trespass. Paul says in verse 19 of Galatians 3 that the law was added because of sin. It came in to increase the trespass in that the law revealed the depth and the power and the pervasiveness of human sin. It revealed to us the bondage that we are in. It demonstrates to us constantly. It is this great mirror that we look into and we see our failings. We see how far we fall short and we understand that we are imprisoned. And then Paul says, continuing on now into verse 24 in today's text, he says, So then, as we were waiting for faith to come, we were held captive under the law. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came. Guardian could also be rendered custodian or teacher, even. And that language is helpful. In the first century, so when Paul was writing this letter to the Galatians, and even prior to that, the role of a guardian or the role of a custodian in a family, was an individual would be hired by a family who had enough means to do this. They would hire this guardian or custodian person to basically watch over their kids, to help them raise their kids, to manage their children and teach their children while the kids were young. So these people were employed by the families to do this work until the children reached maturity. They were guardians. They were custodians of the children in a temporary sense. So when Paul uses that language, that's what's in his mind. The law functioned like that. The law watched over us for a season until maturity, until clarity, further clarity would be reached. The law's role, according to Paul, was always temporary. It was always an interim arrangement. It was a part of God's covenant of redemption being revealed, but it was never the end of God's covenant of redemption. It was never meant to be, the law was never meant to be, the means through which redemption would be accomplished. He's highlighting that by comparing the law to a guardian or to a custodian. The readers of this letter would have understood that. But then what's really cool is to see, again reiterated what we considered last week. Why was the law given? Why then the law? There are several reasons, but what's the main one? Paul gives it to us again in verse 24. You see that word in order. That. That's one of the greatest conjunctions in the Bible. In order. It tells us the purpose. Kind of quick aside. The purpose of God is just all through Scripture. 
Right? So whenever you come to words like this, in order that, so that, your antennas should go up. Because the point of Scripture is not just that like, God knows the future because He's really smart. The point of the Bible is that God knows the future and God controls the future because He planned the future. God is purposeful in everything that He does. He is sovereign and purposeful. He is intentional. So it wasn't like He just is kind of, you know, off the cuff, from the hip, like, hey, let me give them the law, and then later on let me kind of come in and do this new covenant thing. This was God's intention all along. All right, well, what is it? Paul says, so then the law was given as our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Huh. The law was given in order that we might be justified by faith. So then you're like, right, my brain is bending here. Like, help me understand, because that seems to be contradictory in some way. That the law is given in order that I might be justified by faith. How does that work? It's like we considered together in detail last week, so I'm not going to labor it today. The first and primary purpose of the law was and is to get us to justification by faith in Jesus, to drive us to the Savior. In other words, what it does, the law imprisoned us by showing us the depth of our sin. The law imprisoned us by showing us the pervasiveness of our sin. We see our bondage to sin. You experience it every day, just like me. I mean, even as a redeemed sinner, we feel the power of indwelling sin. So certainly before we knew Christ and had God's Spirit given to us, we knew what that was like. So we, through the law, understand our predicament and our bondage. We understand the depth and pervasiveness of our sin. But then the law also points us to the promised Redeemer. It points us to the one who would fulfill the law perfectly. Even the sacrificial system that was a part of the law points us to the sacrificial Lamb of God, Jesus, who would come. Not only would there be one who would fulfill the law, but there would be one who would give himself up. He would be a perfect sacrifice in order to atone for sin. So that was the purpose of the law. Still is the primary purpose of the law. We preach it in all of its holiness in order that people might see themselves accurately and understand their predicament and their bondage and their slavery. And then we preach the law so that they might look to the one who would come and fulfill it. That they might look to the one who could atone for their sin. So that's why, I mean, just again, briefly, that's why it's appropriate in the New Covenant era, when we preach the Old Testament and when we preach the law, that's the first use of it. Always. Is the law our guide for living? Amen. Yes, we considered that last week at, at length. But that's never the first purpose of the law. The first purpose of the law always is to show us our sin and to drive us to the Savior. That's what Paul's saying. The law functioned as our guardian for a time in order that we might be justified by faith because it would make it absolutely plain that that is our only hope. That the Messiah, the Savior, Jesus, is our only hope. So now let's look at verse 25 together. Put your eyes there. Paul continues on. He says, but now that faith has come. So now that that new covenant era has come, the Messiah has been revealed, the Savior has been plainly demonstrated to be Jesus Christ. We are no longer, he says, under a guardian. We're no longer under that custodian or that teacher because we don't need that anymore. We don't need that oversight anymore. We are now underneath a different kind of situation, a different kind of setting. We're not under the guardianship and the custodianship of the law anymore. He continues to drive home for Paul. He's driving home the point that we have reached a new era in redemptive history. Things have changed. Things have pivoted. The plan, the plan has not changed. It's not like this is now God's plan B because plan A didn't work. But it's just that God's plan is now being more clearly revealed to us. And we realize that the terms of the game in one sense have changed. They have been made more explicit. God's people have always been saved by believing God's promises. By trusting God in faith 
That's always how it's happened, and that's increasingly clear now. It's crystal clear that faith in Jesus Christ is how sinners are reconciled to God. So in that sense, some of those things we considered in the introduction. Imperfect people, perfect Savior. Is that legit? Yeah, it's legit. It's biblical. Come as you are, because you can't do this. Jesus has done it, and he's the one that you need to trust, and trust him, and then your life will change, but... The idea that you would change yourself in order to become a Christian is ridiculous. Is that biblical? Yeah, it is. We get it from passages like this one. But now I want us to consider a second point as we look to the text here in the remaining verses. Point number two is this. We've been considering this new era that's dawned. Here we go. This new era is characterized by union with Christ through faith for all who believe. I'm going to say that again. This new era of redemptive history is characterized by union with Christ through faith for all who believe. So put your eyes down on verse 26. We've considered how we were under a guardian, but we are no more. Rather than being under a custodian or a guardian, who in the original kind of setup would not have been your parent, right? it would have been a kind of a hired hand to watch you as a child, Now, verse 26, in Christ Jesus, you are all sons and daughters of God through faith. Rather than being under a custodian's watch, rather than being under a guardian's watch, you have now been adopted into the family of God. God is your father in Jesus Christ by faith. That's the argument. That's what Paul is saying to the Galatian Christians, that in Christ, they are all legitimately children of God. Remember the context. These false teachers in the Galatian churches are telling these Galatian Gentile Christians that they are not legitimate children of God because they're not practicing circumcision. They're not observing the law. They're not of Jewish heritage even. And because of that, they are at best, you know, like stepchildren. But they're not authentically children of God. Paul is saying, no, 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 no. By faith alone, in Christ alone, you are legitimately children of God. You are sons and daughters of the Father in Christ Jesus. And that has happened by faith. And notice that it's true for every one of them. He says that. You are all sons of God. Now, that all, he's writing to Christians. He's not meaning every human being without exception. He's writing to a group of people who are believers. You are all children of God, sons of God, through faith. That's a very different thing than what the false teachers were proclaiming, what the false teachers were preaching. Let's continue on now into verse 27. Paul now says this, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. What he means by that, you were baptized into Christ. He's talking there about union with Christ by faith. This is very Romans 6, right? You are united to Christ by faith. And that is demonstrated. That union with Christ is demonstrated and represented by baptism. And he says, all of you who have been baptized into Christ, who have been united with Him by faith, have put on Christ. What does that mean? It means that you have put on, I mean, essential to this argument, you have put on His righteousness. It's just like we sing. Dressed in His righteousness alone. Faultless to stand before the throne. Those words to that hymn came from this. That you have put on Christ. You have been clothed, not in the filthy rags of your own righteousness, but in the perfect, pure righteousness of Jesus. That's what you're now wearing as you stand before the Lord. And that's happened by faith. That's happened as you've trusted Him and you've been united to Him. And you have been even symbolically baptized into Him. Your identity, your identity is different now. You are now in Christ Jesus. You're not as you were before. Now just as a brief observation before we move on to verse 28. um, This is a Baptist church. We actually have Baptists in our name, which I realize is not... Maybe the most shrewd marketing strategy these days. It's just kind of truth in advertising. You're going to find out soon enough, right? I mean, like if you come in and you spend some time with us, you're going to find out what we believe. 
So I, I, would, I feel remiss if I didn't at least make a comment here. I think it's good to build theology, even in, with respect to something like baptism, from big, high-level theological truths, rather than just going to like little proof texts to argue for what you think. And this is a big, high-level text that I think clearly demonstrates what baptism is. And it's not often pointed to in the conversation. I think that's unfortunate. I was struck by this again this week as I was studying it, maybe in a new way. For Paul, baptism clearly is connected to union with Christ by faith. That's clear. You've been united to Jesus by faith. You were baptized into Him. The whole context of the book of Galatians is about faith. You were baptized into Christ Jesus by faith. You were united to Him by faith. He's already made it clear, as I referenced earlier, at the very beginning of chapter 3, the first five, five verses in particular, that God's people in the new covenant are marked off, not by circumcision any longer, but by the new birth. All right, that matters. New birth. Gotta put that in your backpack, all right? Then he's also talked about, as I've already said, union with Christ by faith. Okay, that's, that's wild. So now we've got new birth, union with Christ by faith, and baptism, kind of all being connected to one another, high level. In this gospel argument. And what's interesting too is that you, you know this because you've been tracking with me as we've made our way through this letter. Keeping the law wholesale has been in view. Right? Works of the law wholesale has been in view. But circumcision has been uniquely in view. Circumcision has been something that is a hot button controversial issue in the Galatian churches. Do these Gentile believers need to be circumcised in order to be righteous before God? Yes or no? Paul is saying no. It seems to me, this is just kind of your reason with me, it seems to me that if circumcision is this big issue, then Paul would just say, you know, hey, baptism has replaced circumcision as the initiation right. Baptism has just replaced circumcision. So I don't even know what we're talking about. He doesn't say that. It seems that he would have done so given all the tension. It seems he would have said, look, like baptism is the new circumcision, end of conversation. But he doesn't say that. I think that's significant. He teaches in this whole context, this letter, at high level, he teaches that God's children are those who have faith in Jesus. He's been very clear. You're children of Abraham, spiritually. You're children of God by faith, by promise. You've been united to Christ through faith. You're justified by faith, not works. You're justified by faith, not circumcision. You know that you are of God's people because you've received the Holy Spirit. You've been born again. And so now, in the context of faith, in the context of union with Christ, and in the context of the new birth, Paul writes about baptism. I think that's substantial. Faith, union with Christ, new birth, baptism. He's connecting those things together for us. Meaning, just kind of putting a bow on this, it is those who have trusted the Lord Jesus who are baptized into the Lord Jesus. It is those who have trusted, placed their faith in Jesus, who are baptized into Him. And so that's why even in our church, in many churches like ours, we baptize people after they have made that profession. We baptize people after they have said, I'm trusting in Christ. And we say, praise God, you've been united to Him by faith. Let's allow you to make that profession publicly through baptism. Let's demonstrate the fact that you've been united to Christ through baptism. Let's demonstrate that you have been united to Christ in particular in a death like His, and you have been washed by Him. Right? We're symbolizing and representing all of those things in the sacrament called baptism. So that was just a brief observation from me. But I think it's substantial that we would see it because it matters. Baptism is a part of this conversation of faith and new birth and union with Jesus. So now let's move on to verse 28 and see what Paul has to say there. This verse is pretty famous. Uh, It's a pretty popular verse to, to cite and to quote. Often poorly. It's often not used well. Um, especially in our day. Let's just read it together. There is neither. Because he said, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. You're all legitimately children of God. Verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now I think you guys, sitting there listening to me, 
reading that verse in the context, can understand it pretty well. What's his point? The point is, you are all Gentile Christians. You are all legitimately sons and daughters of God by faith. And your standing before God has nothing to do with your ethnicity, your race. It has nothing to do with your status, slave-free, maybe even your vocation. It has nothing to do with your gender. You're all one in Christ Jesus, meaning you're all one in standing. I'm going to talk about this a little bit more. I'm going to unpack this. I think you can see that as clearly as I can. The emphasis is on the fact that you are legitimately children of God, regardless of race and gender and status. In particular, that matters to these Gentile Christians who are being attacked on the one hand by Judaizing false teachers who are saying you need to be like a Jew. You need to circumcise the men. You need to keep the law. So all of those who have faith in Jesus have the same standing before God. They have the same standing in Christ, right? So to be a Jew in Christ is no better than to be a Gentile and vice versa. Both are in Christ. To be a slave in Christ is no worse than to be a free person. Vice versa. They're both in Christ. To be a man in Christ Jesus is no better than to be a woman in Christ Jesus. To be a woman in Christ Jesus is no better than to be a man. Because both are in Christ. So with respect to our standing, and by standing I mean our position before God, there is no hierarchy in Christ Jesus. That's the point. The point is that our ethnicity doesn't matter, our gender doesn't matter, our social status does not matter because we all stand in equal need of Jesus and His righteousness. Period. Every human being stands in equal need of Jesus Christ and His righteousness. We all, Christians now, we, have all trusted Jesus to save us. And to say it in another way, we are all standing in the same place. And that's on the solid rock. Whose name is Jesus. We are all one in Him. We are all equal in that sense. In Him, positionally. But clearly, I just want to make this comment quickly. I don't think I need to labor. Clearly, this verse doesn't mean that all distinctions in ethnicity or gender or status or vocation just somehow cease to exist in Christ Jesus. The point is that those things have no bearing on our standing in Him. right? And this is clear biblically. Because I think, I think sometimes, I was having a conversation with a member of this church this week, to be unnamed. We were having a great conversation about some of these things and how it's kind of foolish and ridiculous and contra-Bible to act like the gospel would somehow erase ethnicity or erase gender or erase vocation or anything like that. It does not do that. God is in the business, think biblically, God is in the business of saving all kinds of people who are actually very distinct from one another. And He does that through the gospel in a way that creates great unity in diversity. That's what God is about. Diversity and distinction amongst His people actually brings God a lot of glory. Revelation 5 makes that crystal clear. People from every tribe and language and nation around the throne of God singing praises to the Lamb and the one who sits on the throne. That's always been God's plan. So to think that somehow that beautiful diversity would be erased by the gospel is ridiculous. It's not biblical. And I would say far from flattening distinctions, the gospel actually highlights the glory of distinction. It highlights the glory of distinctions amongst God's people all to the praise of God through Christ. So what that means is we can have really awesome, maybe hard, but awesome conversations about race. We can talk honestly about how, yeah, we can tell that even in this room as we look at each other, we look different. And that's not a bad thing. That's an awesome thing. It speaks to the glory of the Creator. And the fact that He has brought people from various tribes and various tongues and various traditions together in His Son demonstrates how awesome Jesus is and how awesome the plan of redemption that God has made is. It's all like our diversity ethnically, our diversity gender, the fact that we're male and female really on purpose. It's about the glory of God. It's about the glory of the Savior. 
And so we can have really good conversations about those things. And in a culture like ours right now, this is where we as Christians, as the church, can actually come into the race or the gender conversation with some good news. Like, let's celebrate the fact that we don't all look the same. Let's not just flatten it and act like it's irrelevant. Let's get to know each other and understand each other and celebrate our distinctions and celebrate the fact that we are all made by the one true and living God in His image and that God is designed to save a people from every tribe and language and nation. The church can actually talk about harmony amongst people who are different in a way that the world wishes that it could but can't. That's what I see in this verse. I trust that you're tracking with me. So we should rejoice in our diversity and we should rejoice that in our diversity there is great unity in terms of all of us standing in the same place before God in Christ in need of the mercy and grace of God through Jesus. Praise the Lord for that kind of unifying gospel. But now in verse 29, Paul's going to put a bow on this section of his argument. He's going to continue on in chapter 4. But he's going to drive home kind of his point. He's going to wrap up this kind of talk of promise. He says that if you are Christ's, meaning if you belong to Him, if you've been united to Him by faith, you're trusting Him, then you are Abraham's offspring, spiritually. You are a child of promise. You are an heir according to promise. The promise that God had made so many years prior that He was keeping and continuing to reveal His faithfulness in keeping it. So if you're trusting in Jesus Christ, you are a spiritual child of Abraham and you have very literally been adopted into the family of God. Your status as a child of God is not in jeopardy at all if you are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul's argument, Paul's point to the Galatian Christians, if you're thinking about, again, the context they found themselves in, do we need to be circumcised? Do we need to keep the law? Like maybe faith in Christ isn't enough. Maybe I'm not legitimate. Maybe I'm not really a child of God. Paul's saying... Brothers and sisters, you need not worry. You need not worry because you really are God's children simply through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's his argument. And he makes it his point well. And now I want us in the time that we have remaining to consider briefly. I'm going to aim to do this briefly. I'm aware of the time. Uh, a couple of implications for us that flow right out of this text. You can call them number one and two or letter A and B. I really don't care. The first one point of implication for us is this. The oneness of our standing in Christ creates great unity. The oneness of our standing in Christ, you're all one in Christ Jesus, creates great unity. And I'm actually talking about it in a different way than I just did. What I'm meaning now is more like at a heart level. So if we all understand ourselves as Christians, especially even I'm even speaking to this particular local body. If we all understand ourselves to be debtors, debtors in God's debt, we are debtors to grace. We are all debtors to mercy. We are effectively debtors to Christ Jesus. He is our Savior. If we all understand ourselves to be that, it produces all kinds of good things in the church. Like That's really hitting home. It produces not only unity, it produces love and charity and compassion and a gracious demeanor. Toward one another. How so? It's because if we all understand ourselves to be debtors to grace. Debtors to the mercy of God and Jesus. We understand that we're trusting in Jesus for our own righteousness. And we're not trusting in our own merit. Alright. So what does that mean? It means that I've got no reason to parade my own righteousness around. You've got no reason to parade your own righteousness around and be proud of it. So it's not your righteousness that's doing this thing anyway. It could never do it. It's the righteousness of Christ. And on the flip side of that coin, we've got no reason to look down on others for what we perceive to be a lack of righteousness in them. We're all prone to do that. Joshua, I appreciated the fact that you confessed that sin, brother, in the prayer today. We're very prone to look down on others because we see them as less righteous somehow than we are. This kind of understanding kills that kind of self-righteousness. 
The game changer, too, is that when we realize that we really do bring nothing to the table. We'll talk like that, but when that starts to hit home, like, I really bring nothing to the table when it comes to my salvation. But that's not just true, like, on the front end of this equation. That's true on the back end, too. I don't bring anything that earns me merit before God ever. Decisively, do I do that? I don't. So, this is how we begin to think biblically. Like, okay, I've got maybe above average understanding of the scripture. Maybe, maybe I do. Maybe I've got, I'm not talking about me personally, I'm saying you, like in theory. Let's illustrate this. Maybe I've got above average understanding of the scripture. Well, where does that come from? Is it you understanding the Bible or is it the Holy Spirit illuminating the Bible for you? It's the latter, right? It, your strengths, like you're aware, okay, I've got some strengths. I've got some natural talents, but I also maybe got some spiritual gifts. Well, by definition, where did those come from? Who gave you those? God did. Spiritual gifts in particular, I think it's obvious. It's like, well, they're gifts of the Spirit, not you, right? You begin to think in these terms. Okay, even your hard work and your discipline. Oh, here's a good one now. Your hard work and your discipline. Which are good things. Alright? Where did those things come from ultimately? Ultimately. What's at the bottom of your hard work? What's at the bottom of your discipline? And mine. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Because it is God who, will, who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. You work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who works in you both to will and to work. So your wanting to please God ultimately is because of Him working in you. Your working in obedience, your working to please God ultimately is God working through you. His work makes your work possible. Hmm, very interesting. 1 Corinthians 15.10 where Paul will talk about how he worked harder than any of the other apostles. But it was not I it was the grace of God in me. What's he saying? I really did work hard, and I'm not confused as to why I did. It was the grace of God in me that enabled me to do that. We start to think in those terms. That even our work and our discipline come from God. He's the ground of it. He's the one working through us by his Holy Spirit. So we start to think like this. And it begins to change the way we interact with each other. It's a game changer. As we realize that growth in the faith in so many ways involves a greater and greater understanding of our need for the work of God's Spirit. It's a greater understanding of our need for grace. We begin to see that. And all of these things flat out kill pride. Pride, it's like, well, where could it, where could it exist in an environment like this? God gets all the credit, right? Pride is... Gone. Self-righteousness is non-existent. And then this kind of ridiculous, like, spiritual merit badge competition that we all kind of want to engage in, it, it is no more. We stop measuring ourselves against each other in ways that are just unhealthy and bad. And all of this cultivates an environment of love and compassion and charity because we realize that we're all the same. We are fallen men and women. Sinners, strugglers, all of us. And we stand in equal need of the grace of God in Christ. And we come together once a week like this. We come to this table once a week united in that need to assure one another that, hey, we're all coming to the Lord Jesus for our righteousness. So when we begin to think and live like this, it produces a gracious demeanor in us toward each other. We're more inclined to pray for each other. We're more inclined to help those who are struggling because pretty aware of the fact that I struggle a lot too. We're less likely to kind of have this attitude that we all can have in our sin where, you know, we're dealing with somebody who's struggling in sin and it's like, man, I wish he would just get his act together. Like, this is getting old. This is getting hard. But rather than doing that, understanding these things biblically and our standing before God, we begin to look at that struggling brother or sister with compassion. We're more likely to, rather than complain, we'll come alongside that person. Rather than complain, we come alongside to lovingly correct. We come alongside to remind that brother or that sister of the gospel, of his or her identity in Christ Jesus. Which brings me to my second and final piece of implication here. This is number two or letter B of the implication card. 
The first was that our oneness in Christ creates great unity. But this is, letter B, don't underestimate what it means to be in Christ. Don't underestimate what it means to be in Christ. So this can kind of serve as our conclusion. So the, the verses 26 through 28 of Galatians 3, Paul uses that language of in Christ like five times in three verses. In Christ, I've said this before, but this is good for us just to be reminded of. In Christ, that term, like that language, is the most common way by miles for Christians to be referred to in the New Testament. In Christ. For those of us who have placed our faith in the Lord Jesus, it's important for us to remember because we are so prone to forget this or not see it. For those of us who have placed our faith in the Lord Jesus, we really do have a new identity. We are not the same as we were before. Our standing has changed and our identity has changed. So are you a sinner? Am I a sinner? Yes. And that's not fundamentally your identity or my identity anymore. So we talked about this even in the series that we did last December. Think about mental and emotional health stuff. Are you, are you depressed? Are you anxious? Addicted? Angry? Proud? Are you a gossip? A malicious talker? Are you a manipulator? You use people for your own ends. Is that you? Yes, I'm looking at a room full of people like that and I'm a person like that too. We sin like that. And that's not fundamentally who we are anymore. Praise God. That's right. Yeah, because we say, okay, yeah, I do. I am, and rather than saying, I am a depressed person, you say, I am, a, I am in Christ Jesus and I struggle with depression. That's fundamentally different. You might think, well, that's just semantics, man. That's just words. No, it's not. To say, well, I'm just a depressed person who's a Christian is way different than saying, I am in Christ Jesus and I struggle with depression. Or I am in Christ Jesus and I struggle with anger. That's different. Because your identity is in Christ. And the fact that you are a great sinner in no way can take you out of being in Christ Jesus. That's the real deal here. That my sin does not take me from being in Christ to being out of Christ as long as I am trusting in Christ and fleeing to God in Jesus for mercy. Your struggle with sin, as mighty as it may be, does not take you out of Christ. And I would say that it is the greatest thing. I don't like to talk in superlatives. I think this is fair to say. It is the greatest thing in the world to be in Christ. It is the greatest thing in the world to be in Christ Jesus. Because there really is no condemnation. Yes, Romans 8.1 There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's true. There is no reason to fear, ultimately. And what's big for the Apostle Paul in this whole conversation, this whole argument, in this letter that he has written to the Galatian Christians, is that they really are, he wants them to know, they really are good with God through faith in Jesus. They really have been declared righteous through faith in Jesus. They really have been adopted into the family of God through faith in Jesus. Not by works, but by faith alone. And so, huge takeaway. I want you to write this down. I think this is a big deal. This matters to me as your pastor that we would understand this. The gospel, when it's preached biblically, means this. Here we go. Quote. Assurance of salvation. Assurance is the essence of the Christian life, not the goal. Close quote. Assurance is the essence of the Christian life, not the goal. So what I mean by that, I think you can understand it and track with me in terms of what the sentence says. Assurance, knowing that I am good with God through Jesus Christ by faith, is the essence, it's the lifeblood of the Christian life. It's not the goal. A lot of times in the church, the way we preach, the way we talk, the way we live together, we almost make it sound like and seem like assurance. Knowing that I'm good with God is like this goal that I'm going to reach somehow. Knowing that I'm good with God is something that I'm shooting for. That's not biblical. 
Knowing that you are good with God through faith in Christ is the gospel promise. That I'm trusting Christ and I know that I'm right with the Lord. And now I work. Now let's walk together. This matters for a ton of reasons. And I don't really have time to unpack them all. But I just want to name two. And consider them with you very briefly. So that whole piece of assurance. Knowing that you're good with God by faith. Being the essence of the Christian life. Matters big time in your struggle against sin. Because if you don't understand that reality. When sin is just frankly getting the best of you. When you, you feel that internal war happening. And you, you fail. You give in. If you understand that assurance, knowing you're good with God, is something that you've got to attain, you will never have hope. There's no hope in the struggle with sin. God means for us to have hope and confidence in the Lord Jesus that we are good with Him. And therefore, from a position of being good with God and knowing that we're good with Him, we battle sin. We understand that my, that my struggle, your struggle with sin does not affect our standing as we considered for just a moment. Okay. But the other one that I want to bring up is a big one. This assurance being the essence of the Christian life and not the goal matters a ton when you are undergoing discipline and chastisement from God. When you are going through seasons of discipline from God, this really matters. Because we all go through this, right? Hebrews 12 makes it very clear that God is a loving Father. And just like good fathers on earth discipline their children, God, that much more so, as a faithful and good Father, disciplines those He loves. He disciplines His children through trial. He disciplines His children circumstantially through hardship. He disciplines us like we bear the consequences of our sin. Sin makes a wreck, a shipwreck, a train wreck out of our lives. And we suffer because of that. That's the discipline and the chastisement of God when that happens. Right, but the temptation when you're going through that season is always to think, God has forsaken me. God has forsaken me. I am just without Him. He's gone. He's not in this. That's what it feels like. How could He be? This is too hard. This is too painful. It's too ugly. It's too... Twisted. It's too messy. How could God be in this? That's what we always are tempted to think. But the promise of the gospel that we are assured that we're good with God through Christ Jesus means that God, far from forsaking you in those seasons, God is in them. God is in them. He has ordained them. He is changing you. He is making you more like His Son. He's strengthening and preserving your faith through trial. And so, when we think about going through hard times and we go through things that just frankly from our perspective, we see no earthly good in them at all. We can trust that it is discipline and chastisement from our loving Heavenly Father who is changing us. The rest of Hebrews 12 makes that clear. God's a Heavenly Father who's good and He disciplines His kids disciplines those that he loves, so bear up under it. Strengthen your weak knees and your feeble hands. Bear up under the discipline of God because there's a holiness without which no one will see the Lord. He's changing you. He, in that sense, is doing the good work that he has promised to complete and it will be completed on the last day when you stand before the throne. That's what he's doing. And he means for you to know that. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 12, Paul is speaking about bodily resurrection and salvation, and he says this, Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Paul is pressing on, you know, that's one of those t-shirt verses, pressing on towards the goals. Rip that out of context. But he's, Paul is pressing on, to make salvation, bodily resurrection, His own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Christ made me His, and so now I'm pressing on. And that, that is wonderfully good news. That 
We have taken hold of Christ by faith because He first took hold of us. Right? We have taken hold of Him and placed our faith in Christ because He has first taken hold of us. And so in Christ, to be in Christ means that our strength, our understanding, our obedience, even our faith, those things are not the rock on which we stand. Jesus is. Jesus is. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, we do thank You as we do at the end of all of these sermons for the good news of the Gospel. We thank You so much for Jesus, for His life and death and resurrection in our place. We thank You that You have promised us that we will inherit the kingdom of God. You have promised us eternal life and salvation with You through faith in Christ. We pray that You would continue to strengthen our faith. Continue to help us to trust You. Help us to cling to Your promises. We pray that You would drive it deep into our hearts that we would know, that we know that we know that we're good with You. And we pray that we would live from that assurance for Your glory. And we pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen.